Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And welcome to another episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and we're back this week with a special recap from the summer down under. The Australian Open has officially concluded with two epic final singles matches that saw a new star and a familiar face each etch their names in tennis lore. 21-year-old American Sophia Kennan won her first major title in a thrilling three-set victory over unseated two-time major champion Garbini Muguruza. And Novak Djokovic triumphed yet again, winning a record eighth title in Australia in five grueling sets over Dominic Team. On the TC Live podcast, we're chatting with the man that called both championship matches in Australia, veteran sportscaster Ted Robinson. Ted has been a titan in the industry for several decades and has been a staple in the tennis world for a very long time. And despite all of his accolades and accomplishments, broadcasting a wide range of sports, can you believe that this was his very first Australian Open? Ted completed his career slam in 2020, and we're delighted to have him now on the Tennis Channel Live podcast. He simply said to provide more for my children, to give them a better chance. The parents came with a couple of hundred dollars. Two decades later, they have a major tennis champion. All right, you just heard the match point call for Sophia Kennan's maiden Grand Slam title in Melbourne by our guest on the TC Live podcast, Ted Robinson. He joins us now. Ted, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mitch. Nice to be with you. Well, I said it was Kennan's maiden uh, Grand Slam trophy in uh, Melbourne, but uh, it was also somebody else's Grand Slam, Ted. You've been covering tennis for over two decades now. First time in Australia. What was that experience like? <laughs> well, yeah, Mitch, not, not to dwell too much on me, but it was uh, – I mean, look, it was something that had been, I, I felt like I'd been missing it because I'd heard forever from all of my colleagues and you know, tennis people who've gone to Melbourne forever, what a great experience it was. And for a, a lot of reasons that were professional because of other things I was doing, uh, that opportunity never really happened. And when it finally did this year, uh, Tennis Channel offered me the chance to go and I just jumped at it. So it was phenomenal. I totally understand why they call it the happy slam because it's just the Australian vibe. Everybody is happy. As I've been telling, uh, I've been telling people since I've been home, you know, I never heard anybody honk their horn. I didn't hear anybody yell at anybody. Um, you know, there was, I was stunned. There was very little smoking in Melbourne for the 17 days there. Uh, and, and obviously Melbourne is a huge city of 5 million people, yet it was extremely manageable. You can walk everywhere. The fans are happy. They love sport. Uh, and even though, 
the eventual champion, you just heard the point, Sophia Kennan knocked out their hope in Ash Barty. I thought the crowd treated Kennan with the proper amount of respect in the finals because they understood how, how hard she fought, how tough she was, and how she literally earned that title. She did. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, no honking, not much smoking. You're going to make all of us want to move to Australia. So maybe we should just <laughs> kind of keep that under wraps <laughs> going forward. But. Well, well, you know, they, they, Mitch, they do. Uh, that's why they, they limit the influx into their country pretty vigorously. And, and just one quick last point, which is, which is more serious. You know, we went, all, all of us in the tennis world went there with the concern being the fires. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the event, it was by the time we left, the concern had totally shifted to the virus. And, you know, it's pretty serious. Australia's taken a big hit to their economy because this is their summer. They are heavily dependent on tourism, and it's hurt them a lot. So I, I hope that the the fires are more under control. We know that. Hopefully the virus becomes so, and, and, and Australia continues to thrive. Absolutely. Our thoughts are with them. Uh, it seems like it's turning for the better, which is great. Uh, the women's final that we just heard the match point from Sophia Kennan gets her first major. She becomes the 11th woman of the last 18 to win her first slam. Something just incredible to think about. Best of three sets again at its finest. Cause if you look at it, she loses the first set, but she calls back wins the second. And in every match, there's those championship, every championship match, there's those moments where you, you see that player, determine and, and prove what their what their medal is, what they're worth. I, I look at that love 40 hold, two all in the third set. She wins that. She wins the next three games. She wins the title. I was impressed with Kennan's game, but her fighting mentality is is just off the charts. Yeah, Mitch, and you know, the, the, and look, she referenced it, the, the five straight winners line uh, in that two all third set game, and a lot of people have talked about that, and it's valid. It will live forever. There's one other point that I'll attached to that theory and I saw it happen twice it happened after the first set of Kennan's match with Coco Goff and after the first set of the final Kennan lost both of those first sets people forget she lost the first set to Coco yeah but in both cases she took a timeout and love it or hate it it's in the rules and players strategically use it and it's just a timeout and in both cases, Kennan came back to the court after that timeout, and she totally spun the match. She completely took it away from Coco, and it took a little longer with Muguruza in the final, but she did. And that, to me, speaks to her her tennis mind at 21. It's pretty advanced. And she understood, hey, I lost you know, the Coco match with all Coco mania, et cetera, was a, was a tough first set. And then Coco kind of just stormed through the tiebreak against Kennan, and Kennan was wise enough to just say, hold on. Mm-hmm. I need to go back in the bathroom and look myself in the mirror and gather myself. And she did. And that, that's what I'll remember about her, um, you know, the point construction and her toughness, which we all see, but the fact that she understood to play within the rules as they are. And she took those two timeouts to me that I will always think were keys to her winning the title. You know, Ted, I heard you say on the broadcast that Kennan is, you know, her her idol growing up was Serena Williams, but that she has a lot of like Maria Sharapova in her game, her her attitude, her feistiness. She kind of stalks around the court. I see a lot of times in both the men's and the women's games that the player that kind of acts like that usually is about to become unglued. But something special with her, she actually bears down and, and gets her head on her shoulders, like you said, takes that timeout, hits the reset button, and just can completely flip the match. I, I did see a lot of that spunk, the way she was spiking the ball down as as much you did. <laughs> yeah, the, the ball spike is fast. I mean, look, that's not a Sharapova thing 
you know, she walks to the back wall between points. That is a complete, you know, a, a mimic of Maria. And, and I think it's a very clear comparison. She's a good deal shorter than Maria, but that part of Kennan's game is, is absolute. I mean, she, and I, this is a hard thing to say because it, and, and I'll risk sounding wrong, but mental strength sometimes isn't in the greatest quantity on both sides, but I think we often see it rise up in key moments in the women's game, especially with the serve. And it's yeah. been going on for a long time and, and great players. I mean, I always bring up Dementieva, who was a tremendous player and won a lot, but in big moments, her serve would just, the nerves would just grip her. Anyway, Kennan just defies all of that. Mm-hmm. And she defies it all in a way that is really the greatest player I've ever seen in women's tennis like that is Maria. So to me, this is a massive compliment to Kennan. It's why, in fact, uh, when uh, Andy uh, Chu's team asked us the first couple of days there, our social uh, media crew, and asked me who's the player on the women's side flying under the radar, and I said Sophia Kennan was my answer, and I had no idea she was going to win the title, <laughs> clearly. But the point was, all she does is win matches. And so while the attention goes other places – and Coco Mania is clearly a big part of this. Sophia Kennan was c- calmly, quietly in the top 20 winning matches. And that's what she showed over the two weeks of Melbourne. Is there's, you know, in our data-driven, analytics-obsessed world, as that creeps further into sport, I, I fear the one quality that gets overlooked is simply winning matches. And Kennan has done that as well as anybody in, in, on the younger edge of the game. A little Nostradamus action there coming up with uh, the Kennan pick. But, no, I mean, she beat Serena last year. She won three titles. She She's on the rise, and, and it was Lindsay Davenport who called the match with you who said she's been overlooked not just not just worldwide but kind of on the American up-and-comer scene at just 21 years of age. She's not overlooked anymore uh, winning her first title. Ted Robinson here on the, on the TC Live podcast. I want to switch to... The uh, loser in this match, Garbini Muguruza, who had a, had a great tournament by all accounts, especially the fact that, that she was unseated, which seemed a little ridiculous. I don't think we're going to be worrying about that in the near future. But she came unglued at the end of this match. But I do think she had an incredible two weeks, how she was able to string together big matches, beating help in the semis, and really getting her game back on track after a really good offseason to kind of reset. Yeah, and Mitch, um, I'm going to defer here to... My partner, the aforementioned Lindsay Davenport, the brilliant commentator, she said something, I think it was during the final, and it was just a perfect one-sentence summary of, I think, Muguruza's Australian Open. And Lindsay just said, it's great to see her smiling on the court again. Mm-hmm. And that was just, it was just perfect. Uh, it crystallized everything because Muguruza's a champion. We've seen her going way back to when she first arrived by stunning Serena in the early rounds of Roland Garros and eventually she wins the title over Serena. She wins a Wimbledon. And last year she was just miserable on the court. And, you know, subsequently we find out she was, you know, pretty much miserable off the court. She just needed to break from her longtime coach. That clearly was, was, had become a negative in her life. And she did. And she's reconnected with Conchita Martinez. And now it's a positive and she's back. I mean, she had every chance to win that title, which would have been you know, stunning because she had come in, I think, 36 in the world was a rank entering Melbourne. Um, but the good part is that if Garbina 
keeps the attitude that we saw in Melbourne. She will be a factor once again. How many titles she can win, who knows? But she'll be there. And with so much churn in women's tennis that you outlined with a number of different champions, you know, Garbini is one of those players that get can get overlooked now because she's somewhat middle-aged. It's, it's a scary thought to say about a 26-year-old, but she is. She's kind of middle-aged right now in, in pro tennis. But that means she still has – she has runway ahead of her. And the way she played and the way she looked, as Lindsay pointed out, in Melbourne is the great uh, – that's, that's the great compliment to her. And it means that going forward this year – be, I think I think as soon as Roland Garros, she's got to be once again, you've got to talk about her in the mix of the six, eight, maybe 10 potential champion candidates. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Absolutely. Uh, it's scary to think middle ages at 26 in the tennis game, but she's found her game. It was a great two weeks and it should set her up for a good season. Uh, the last thing on this women's final, and we, we talked about the different number of champions, uh, different number of major champions we've seen in the last couple of years. I keep going back and forth of if someone, Ted, you think needs to take the mantle. It, it's nice to have a Serena Williams type that is dominant, that wins a lot of, of championships. It's in the final consistently. But I'm also thoroughly enjoying the number of up-and-comers that are breaking through, that are getting to finals, the different matchups we have. Do you think someone needs to take the mantle, or do you think women's tennis is in a pretty good place with all these new different champions? <laughs> you know, that, Mitch, that's a fabulous conversation point mm -hmm. because we do have stark contrast right now. As, as somebody, when I was a young kid and grew up loving ice cream, somebody explained to me, there's a reason why Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors, right? <laughs> you know, we, all like, we all like different things. And so we have a stark contrast in, in professional tennis right now in that the men's game is thoroughly dominant by three people. And the women's game is not dominant by anybody. Serena dominates attention right now, but she doesn't dominate championships right now. Coco Goff is the, you know, the incredible, you know, the old, we used to say, rising on the billboard charts, you know, rising faster than anybody, but she's 15, and she hasn't won a major, obviously, yet. So my point is I think that's right now th that mix is good. At some point, I think all sport benefits from having a top team, or pardon the phrase we say, a top dog. Mm -hmm. um, you want to have a target to shoot at. So I think at some point the women's game will benefit from one or two players emerging from this mass, and it's no longer, you know, four different major winners each year. Uh, and therefore, you want to find the middle ground. You don't want to be like the men's game where it's two or three. And we had, you know, we had a brief run of that with Venus and Serena, uh, where they were dominant. And they were making all the finals and winning the vast majority of titles. We had that run probably the mid two thousands. And it didn't last nearly as long as it's lasted with the three top men. Um, and, at, and at the same time, it's the other thing about the men's thing. I, I do think we all have to praise the fact that we will never see this again. No. <laughs> none of us. Never. None of us. Even, young, even a young guy like you is never going to live to see this. And I'll tell you, I'm going to give another one of our colleagues credit. Uh, this was, I think, 
the day of the men's final and Paul Anacone just turned to me and he sat there and he said, you know, who's the next guy that's going to pass Pete Sampras? And I stopped, you know, because you wait to say, who's the guy who's going to pass Federer or is Djokovic going to pass or who's going to end up ahead in the three. And Paul had a great, I said that that's another great half an hour TC live question to debate because my first Wimbledon called was 20 years ago this year. And Pete won the final to beat or to pass Roy Emerson. Rafter. Yeah. At 13, at 13, he beats Rafter in the final, but that's 13. Okay. <laughs> He's been passed by three guys. since. It's insane to think about that. And what Paul's point was, is that right now, the people that would have the chance to catch and pass Pete, let alone the top three, are all at zero, right? They're at zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, Andy Murray has three, but we know where Andy is in his career. Vavrinka has three, but he's 34 or 35. You know, Delpo has one, Chilich has one, but they're over 30. Everybody else is at zero. Can we possibly think that any male is going to get to 14 anytime in the next decade? It's hard to fathom that. And so th- that – that point, I think, just brings into clearer focus the extraordinary achievements of the top three. It does. It's almost like it needs its own wing, like in, in tennis history. Like this is the Federer, Djokovic, Nadal wing, and, and Pete Sampras chasing him is going to be <laughs> is going to be something that might be possible, but not in the near future. Not a single man under uh, the age of thirty with a Grand Slam. Pretty remarkable stuff. Ted Robinson here on the TC Live podcast. Let's transition to that men's final, Ted which saw uh, Djokovic dig deep win his eighth Australian Open title. And here now is your match point call. And Novak Djokovic still reigns in Australia. That's the luck. That's the champion. Every time it seems like you have him figured out, you have him cornered, he digs deep, he he. Finds that extra reserve that only the, the few select greats in their respective sports have. Novak Djokovic down two sets to one for the first time in his major final career. Wins the match in that in that setting. So, you know, Ted, you were there. You called that match. Team was battling hard. Had that lead. Djokovic looked flustered. He flipped the script better than I think I've ever seen him in his career in the sense that the energy after the two service calls were completely was completely negative. He was down. He was barking at his box. You saw it firsthand. He was able to just change everything, dig deep, win the fourth, and then win the fifth. It was remarkable stuff from a remarkable champion. Yeah, no, I mean, look, what he's done to win eight of those without losing a final. You know, we've seen Rafa 12-0 and in the finals in Paris. So Novak's achievement in Australia is right there. Uh, this one, I got to tell you, I, if I'm Dominic Team, this one, unlike the two losses to Rafa in his Roland Garros, the last two Roland Garros finals, this one, I, I'm still wondering how it sits with team because to see Djokovic be so become unglued near the end of the second set and was clearly connected to the time violation calls that he received uh, at four all in the second. And then to just basically go away, he gave the third set away. I mean, Novak was not there. It was somebody else wearing Djokovic's clothing. And then suddenly to come back out in the fourth set. And again, he took a little time out there. And he comes back out in the fourth set, and now he's Novak again. And if I'm team, I'm not sure if I'm terribly thrilled about that. And I, you know, talking to some veteran tennis people about that after the match, there was, some, you know, 
there was some talk about a little gamesmanship by Novak. And if that was the case, it sure as heck worked. Now, regardless of that, what, what, when Djokovic plays the way he did in sets four and five, again, it's hard to fathom. That's why when, the way he played in four and five, Mitch is the reason why I think a lot of folks walked away from Melbourne again saying he's going to be the guy that eventually ends up atop the heap uh, because it's just that, that, that level of tennis is, is incredible. And, and the level of tennis, by the way, he played the first, what, five games of the match uh, was also incredible. The other thing about Novak that I, I, we've come to appreciate, you have to, is that he has that ability to be out of a, a championship match for much of the match and not be the better player and then suddenly become better and win. And no greater example, I think, than the Wimbledon final where for the vast majority of six sets, Roger Federer was the better player. And overall, Federer was a better player in that match, and Djokovic won three tiebreaks, and there, thus is the champion. And that, that's a great compliment to him is what I'm saying, that mm-hmm. he has the ability right now, he understands, well, everybody understands, I shouldn't say that, but he, he can reach a higher level when the points matter most. And everybody knows tennis. I've spent 30-something years learning in tennis that not all points are equal. Nope. And Djokovic plays that beautifully. He understands. And again, the Wimbledon final last summer to me is stark. But this one had a little bit of that in it as well. He understood when he needed to play. And he took that when Dominic team was, I mean, two sets to one, I, I pretty much had team thought this was his time, his moment to break through and win. And I'm sure team thought that. Yeah. <laughs> and then to see Novak come back out in the fourth set and just turn it completely around. That's why, uh, and I don't know, Mitch, if we'll ever truly know how team takes that inside, but that, that had to be a punishing blow to him. Yeah, he looked very gutted and tired after the match and just said, you know, team did in his press conference, I'm paraphrasing that it's going to hurt for a while, and he wants to win a major while the big three is around because he feels, and, and justifiably so, that that would be worth more, a, a greater accomplishment. He wants to beat the best of all time in a major Djokovic, you mentioned. I mean, he plays big points as well as anyone at at a maybe even higher clip than Federer and Nadal. Even in the fourth and fifth sets that he played brilliantly. Fourth set, I think it's one all. He saves a break point where if he gets broke, he's down two sets and a break. It could be a different match. And then in that fifth set, I think it was right after he broke about 2-1, team had a chance, a break point, and, and Djokovic just serves out of it. Uh, it is incredible. I got the sense that it's almost like those old Freddie and Jason movies. you got to basically kill the heart. It's 2-1 team. I felt like if he doesn't win the fourth set, Djokovic is winning this match. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, you're right about that, Mitch. It's the, um, the, the line that has been quoted quite a bit from the great TV show, The Wire. If you come at the king, you best mm. not miss. And that's exactly where maybe that's a great way in one sense to summarize how team must feel. Because at two sets to one, he had the king. He had the king. And he couldn't knock him out. And you know, how much of that was team, how much of that was Novak regaining his form for whatever reason. You know, that's a debate we could all have, but that's exactly what happened. You had him in a position, as you referenced, Novak had never come back from two sets to one in a major final. He's come back from two sets down. I think it was four times in best of fives, but never two sets to one in a major final. So it's just, that's why all of this to me, more than, in the aftermath, I should say, Mitch, more than the Djokovic winning 17, I've just been pondering all week how team 
rebounds from this. And look, that's what we do in tennis all the time. We wonder how the top players, both sides, men's and women's, rebound from adversity, from tough, from a tough loss, from a tough match, from an injury. And that's, to me, watching team go to clay courts. You know, he'll obviously he's going to go to Indian Wells and defend his title there, but I think the next big target for him has to be Roland Garris again. He's been to the semis at least four straight years. How does he rebound when he plays on clay? He can beat Rafa. He's beaten him on clay before. He's beaten Novak as recently as the semis of Roland Garros last year on clay. Does he have that form? Can he get that back? He's beaten the big three, uh, every single one of them, but not in the majors. And uh, or he beat Djokovic, but it was on clay. But he, he needs to do it when it counts. The backhand was, was slacking, we saw. It looked like he was tired. I mean, we saw Djokovic just kind of breeze through to the final without any major test team. Had to spend a lot of heavy minutes on that court, so it'll be interesting to see where he's at. I do think it's a good thing, though, Ted, that he's taken some time, that he's going to kind of rest a little bit, recharge. This is another talking point in the tennis world. Does team play too much? I think part of it's a mental break. He needs to, he needs to, you know, get over this loss if that's even possible. But it's good that he's kind of being more selective with his playing. And and you know, Mitch, as you were saying that, I thought of something else that we should raise. Um, that's that's valid about Djokovic's path in Australia, and of course the, the the one match we all looked forward to was Roger and Novak just pummeled him. Uh, you know, Roger was clearly for being 38 plus and with some sort of an injury was not the same anyway. But at the same point, team has to go four punishing sets with Rafa, and that's a factor that you know the 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 hangover factor when you beat. Rafa and the physical toll that takes on you is valid. And that I think is something we have to assess when we think about how these two players, Djokovic and team got to the finals. There's a reason why no one has ever won a major beating both Rafa and Novak. And it's what Roger came one point away from doing at Wimbledon. That's the amazing part, right? He had never done that. And, and the semi at Wimbledon last year was a very physical, as you know, as much as it can be on, on grass, it was a very physical match. And I personally thought Roger had no chance in the final because of that. And darn if he doesn't have, you know, two match points against Novak. And that's how close he came to doing something that is a, you know, would be physically extraordinary for a 26-year-old like team, let alone a 38-year-old like Federer. Yeah, and, and those four sets with Zverev are no joke as well. Uh, it, it, it's incredible. It's a good run by team. Obviously, a sour taste in his mouth that might not go away for a while. Still has a lot of good tennis left. And as you said, going to be circling the calendar at Roland Garros where he's made two finals and uh, is trying to get over the hump there. Just wants to get his first major, maybe be the first young guy to break through. Uh, Ted, we can we can wrap with this. I mean, Djokovic, his 17 slams is one thing. The way he plays, we talked about his brilliance, especially in Australia, eight championships. The the GOAT argument and the debate isn't going to be settled in the in the near future, but I'd have a hard time believing it's going to be anybody other than him when the dust is settled because I'm not seeing much slippage in his game, and I just I don't know how you keep him from collecting slams because he has proven that he's an all-surface player. He's able to make deep runs. He gets himself in the best form at every major. I'm just having a hard time believing that when the dust is settled, it's going to be anybody other than Djokovic at the top. Well, Mitch, like I said, you're, you've got um, some good company that agrees with you on that point. And it, the point, I, I think there's a couple of factors on Djokovic that are real, real quickly here. One, the only 
dip we've really seen from Novak since he's become a champion was connected a lot to off-court stuff, and it's when he let his entire team go. Right. And he he lost his – and that's why I, the, the match point that you played, I made the reference to the look in his eyes, and I continue to maintain. I mean, it's what was gone. He was a year and a half or so where he looked – he had a, a, a vacant look on his face when he was on the court. And I'm a big – I study body language and facial expression a lot in all sports – and he got that look back in his eyes during Wimbledon in 2017. And it's, it came back again during that final against team. So if he can avoid the dip, which again was connected, a lot of stuff going on in his life. And he finally got it straightened out. He brought Marion Vita back. He would have every chance to do what you're projecting. The other great thing about Djokovic was his speech. And I, it's hard for me to understand, because I, I, I really don't understand why he is so, there, there's such a lack of support for him. I mean, the crowd in Australia, and this is my first time being there, so I, I'm, I'm coming there with a blank slate. The Federer match, you understand. The world loves Federer. Of course. I mean, Federer, everybody loves Federer. But in the final, it was very solidly pro-team in Rod Laver Arena. So there's no rooting interest there. It's a, it's an Austrian against a Serb. What and Novak handles it well. And you could tell when he spoke. At least I could. I felt it there. You know, he was a little, you know, uh, put off perhaps by the fact that the crowd hadn't pulled, perhaps for him as much as he would have liked. But then he spoke so intelligently about the troubles in Australia right now, the tragic uh, death of Kobe Bryant and his family. And that's what, to me, makes Novak. He has an awareness about him that I find exceptional. And, and I think we see it with Roger. We see it with Rafa, although Rafa's, you know, in, in his English expressions are, you know, it's a second language for him. It's not quite as, as clean as Roger's and Novak's are. But I so, I'm so impressed by that with Djokovic. Um, you know, a lot of people have talked about this. I've experienced it in his younger years where he used to ask, he'd see me and he'd ask me for somebody's phone number because he wanted to talk to them about help with tennis and he's always been the guy that's reached out to other people and we've seen him go through various uh iterations in recent years now it's Goran Ivanisevic who's in his box that part of of Novak is also fascinating he's not in, he's not a closed you know like Rafa is Rafa is a very closed guy right it's it's just his team it's his family and there are very few outsiders that get in Novak is more of a guy that lets outsiders in and listens to them and absorbs and, and takes advice and filters. And I'm impressed by that. So um, all of it funnels back to if Novak can avoid the big dip in his life, then I think there's a hell of a chance right now that he does what you're talking about. He is an absolutely ruthless competitor. It's the look he has when he plays and, and after he wins these slams when, you know, he knows he's like, I'm the, I'm the best dude on this court. You're not going to beat me. But you put it perfectly off the court in his speech. He's eloquent. He, he's very, he's, he's a very good humanitarian. He's a great ambassador of the game. I think, you know, we also are spoiled by this fact, Ted, is that not only is this never going to happen in terms of the number of slams that, at the top that are being won by just three men, but the representation, the, the representatives of the game, the leaders, the champions are, are so good and, and such great ambassadors of the game. I don't know if we'll ever see that again either with Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic not only being the best ever in terms of winning, but just being wholesome, good people and great for the sport. 
Yeah. And, you know, Mitch, it's a great point. And let me go on that for just a second because so much happened over three weeks in Australia. And let's go back again to the beginning because when we all went there to start this, the big story was the fires, the smoke, the air quality. The first day of qualies was was very tough, no doubt. And a player, I think very ill-advised, probably out of emotion, criticized Roger and Rafa for not speaking up on behalf of the qualifying players uh, who were who had to play in, in a, on a very smoky day where the air was dicey. And Roger got a little peeved when he finally made his press appearance in Melbourne his first time. And one of the rare times you'll ever hear Roger with just the slightest bit of irritation in his voice, like, you know, I'm not God here. <laughs> I can't wave a wand and change everything just because you like it. And, and quite frankly, it was, I, I think, and I think it was just an ill-advised moment by this player, but it also speaks to the power that these guys have because there is player number 190 in the world who's not accomplished anything on the pro level of big thing, but he thinks that Roger can make it happen. Yeah. Uh, that's an extraordinary compliment to Federer and, the last point is that the three of them in different times, all three of the big ones have stepped to the leadership of the ATP council and they have fought from everything I know. They have fought in different ways for things to be better for the players. And especially Roger has fought diligently. And I know this from people who've talked to him about it. Uh, he's fought diligently to make things better for the, the, the guys ranked hundred to 200 to give uh, first round losers in the majors, higher prize money, things like that, that help that mean a lot to them. The three guys socially responsible and responsible uh, for improvements within their sport. Absolutely. Ted, uh, I think we're in a good place right now in terms of tennis. We'd like to see some new champions on the men's side, but it's just been a joy to watch these three. Ted Robinson, the TC live podcast. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for wrapping up Australia. And I hope you made some lasting memories in your first trip to Melbourne. Well, I've I got to be honest, Mitch. I hope it's not my last because it was a ton of fun being there with TC. Absolutely. We appreciate you coming on. We'll be catching up soon. Thanks again for joining the Tennis Channel Live podcast. Thanks, Mitch. All right. Huge thanks again to Ted Robinson for coming on the TC Live podcast. It was great catching up with him. He has so much to say. And he does it in such an elegant fashion been around the game for a while and uh, i think it's it's good to appreciate greatness it's good to appreciate new rising stars great to have a representation on our network like ted and, and somebody that's able to call the matches give his opinions very measured takes it was fun and uh we'll see what happens we're moving on in the swing into spring so there's a lot of tennis before we get to roland garros before we see if nadal can win his 13th french open ty fetter in the all-time slams count a lot of tennis, but again, congrats to Djokovic and Kennan. Kennan will be in action in the Fed Cup this weekend, along with other Team USA representatives, including Serena Williams and Coco Goff. They've got a nice matchup with Latvia. It actually airs tonight. They're in Washington for that one. A lot of Fed Cup action on Tennis Channel, so make sure you catch that, as well as all the swing into spring action on Tennis Channel. Catch every episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast on all podcast platforms as well as the Tennis.com podcasting network. It is a great experience to get all your tennis podcasts whenever you want them. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks again to Ted Robinson. This was the Tennis Channel Live podcast. We'll see you next week.